0: You are listening to a sermon from Emmaus Church LCMS. For more information, please go to www.emmauspasco.org. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. I invite you to be seated and to take out your your sermon notes for today. Um, My wife a couple weeks ago told me about this coffee mug that she saw on the internet that she thinks I should have. And it said, hold my coffee while I overthink this. And I mentioned to her that I had seen a similar t-shirt on a pastor at a pastor's camp that probably was given to him by his wife. So it seems that this might be a running problem with us as pastors. Now, it's true, of course, that it's possible to overthink things. Though I suspect that what we mean by overthinking really has to do more with thinking poorly or thinking unclearly than it does with thinking too much. But when it comes to matters of faith, the accusation of overthinking takes an interesting and important shift. That if you've ever tried to think about your faith long enough, especially out loud, or to think about what's going on in your heart out loud, you'll find sometimes Christians will begin to worry that you might be splitting your head from your heart. You might be neglecting your feelings for the sake of ideas. And the admonition comes, don't think too much, don't ignore your feelings. And sometimes this even blossoms into the terrible idea that thinking has no place in the life of faith at all, that God's not supposed to make sense, that's what faith is for. And this has the effect of turning Christianity into a kind of make-believe. But there's this common idea that Christians should be careful not to split their head from their hearts. Now, in the last three weeks, we've been going through a variety of common ideas that that lead us into anxiety by pointing us at ourselves instead of pointing us at Jesus. Now, the fear of overthinking, probably it may not create anxiety for you as much as the others might have, but they result at least or often in making us not very good thinkers, especially not very good thinkers about our feelings and about what's going on in our heart. Now, I summed up this whole series a few weeks ago by saying that the, everything we're saying in the next five weeks is boils down to stop looking at your heart and start looking at Jesus. And that's a summary. It's a crude summary. And it works as well as it goes, but it might have been more precise. What I should have said, perhaps, is stop looking for God in your heart and start looking at Jesus. Because I don't want you to not look at your hearts there are actually some important things going on in there, things that you need to know about, things you need to be aware of, like your feelings, your ideas, your intuitions. And if we're going to be Christians, that means we're going to live lives of repentance. And repentance means that we do not ignore our feelings, nor that we, nor that we close down our thoughts, but that our thinking welcomes feeling. So today we're going to talk about why you don't need to worry about splitting your head from your heart But instead, how our thinking welcomes feeling. And I want to start by pointing out the irony of the idea that you could split your head from your heart. There's there's an assumption built in there that you think with your head and you feel with your heart. Right? And what's ironic about this is that this division is not even possible to state in biblical Hebrew. In the Bible, there's only one word for the thing that goes into, in biblical Hebrew, there's only one word for the thing that that goes on in your inner life, the word lave which is translated heart. And in the Bible, you think and you feel in the same place, the heart. It's the center of the human life, inner life. The book of Proverbs has loads to say about it. And one of the things I'm going to ask you to do in your notes this week is to actually use your concordance in the back of your study Bible and do a little study of what Proverbs has to say about your heart. Because there's many, many aspects to it. The heart is where you, well, you learn God's word. You write God's word on your heart. It's something you must guard. But it's also the place where you can desire a woman. It's the place where where evil people make evil plans. It's where anxiety can weigh you down. It's where you are are alone with yourself. Your your heart is, is inaccessible to anyone else. It's secret. And sometimes it's so mysterious, you don't even know what's going on in there. But except God does. God knows, Proverbs says, what goes on in people's hearts and he judges people according to the secret thoughts of their hearts so the heart is one unified catch-all word for the inner human life in the old testament and in fact it's kind of fun when you when you go into uh the esv and you look at some english translations say of psalm 7 where it says that god tests the heart and the mind in hebrew the word there is not brain there's no hebrew word for brain it's kidneys god tests your heart and your kidneys. Now, when Greek came along, it gave a few words for mind, but this never resulted in the idea that somehow mind and heart were against one another or split from one another. Jesus, in the New Testament, when he's, uh, he, he thinks like a good representative of the Old Testament tradition, and he responds to the Pharisees who are, who are thinking in their minds, evil thoughts about him. And he says, why do you think evil in your hearts? Because the heart is where you think. You can't split the two apart because they are the same thing in the biblical mind. You think and you feel in the same place. And that means it's pretty important for us to know what's going on in our hearts. Because that's where God judges. He judges the secret thoughts of of the heart, and that's the source of our moral life. Jesus speaks for the tradition when he says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So the heart is the source and center of our moral life, and it's important that we understand it and we know about it. So we're going to start today by thinking a little bit about the human heart and what scripture has to teach us about it. The first thing we need to realize is that the human heart has the law of God written on it. The law of God We talked about this last week, that the law of God ultimately boils down to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is a part of every human heart in history. Paul says this in Romans 2, when the Gentiles, who do not have the revealed Torah, they do by nature what the Torah requires, they are a law unto themselves. They are a Torah unto themselves, even though they do not have the revealed law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, written on your hearts. Every human being, Christian, non-Christian, has a basic sense of right and wrong, of fairness and unfairness, of decency and indecency. There is truth to be discerned in every human heart, ancient echoes of that good and just and merciful will of God that he inscribed on every human person. And we learned last week that this will is called God's moral will. It's what he created us to do. It's what he wants us to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But, of course, the reality is that we don't all do this, right? And Paul actually continues that this law written on our hearts actually serves only to expose how hypocritical we are. He he goes on in the next verse, They, the Gentiles, show that the work of law is written on their heart, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them. That is, we all have a sense of fairness that we like to apply to ourselves, but not to others. We might cut someone off, and we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, oh, I was just being careless, but when someone cuts us off, (laughs) death. See, we have this moral sense, but this moral sense serves to show us that we actually use it to serve ourselves. Our hearts were programmed to love God with all our hearts and love our neighbor as ourselves, but instead, we love ourselves with all our hearts, and we love our neighbors when convenient. Thus, where the heart, where the law is written, has become corrupted by sin. Corrupted by sin, and since it is corrupted by sin, it becomes the source of all other sins. The heart is the source of desire, of feeling, of belief of action of speech and that means it's the source of all corrupt and evil desiring and feeling and acting and speaking and, and thinking and this means that fundamentally our hearts cannot be trusted they were made to discern the good but they now seek to be masters of good and evil they seek to bend all things to their own will our hearts jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it see jesus too knows that when we sin when we speak ill of another person when we lust after another person in our hearts when we hate another person it's an external manifestation of an internal disease a heart enslaved to sin this is what he says in matthew 15 for out of the heart come evil thoughts murder adultery sexual immorality theft false witness slander So we have this this biblical dynamic, two sides. Uh, That is, the heart is at once inscribed with the good law of God and it is wholly given over to its own selfishness and wickedness. This gives it immense dignity rivaled only by its great propensity for harm. Our thoughts and our feelings and our actions and those things we see out in the world, they are never so evil that they're impossible for us to understand because we share this common humanity But they're never so good that they could rectify the problem that they all spring from a selfish source so our hearts can have good intentions but those intentions are never so good that they make up for the fundamentally selfish nature of their source and this is why the gospel is tremendously good news because jesus is not subject to our hearts his heart was not enslaved to love of himself he perfectly loved his father and he perfectly loved his neighbor giving his own life in death for his enemies and in his life and in his death and in his love we are all presented with a promise from god that jesus conquered the sin that reigns over our hearts that he paid the debt incurred by our sinful hearts and that he will give us new hearts new hearts because through faith in jesus we are given the very spirit of god it's poured into us he is poured into us To bring us Christ himself with Christ's own heart. With all his power and his freedom and his goodness and his love. And that's the third thing we need to recognize about the heart. Through faith in Christ, the heart is being renewed. Made new by the Holy Spirit. This is amazing, amazing news. Because if you're anything like me, you are pretty weary of your own heart. You've grown tired of the way that your heart has anger that hurts the people you love or bitterness that hurts the people you love. You know the way your heart can churn up self-pity and ruin good days and good times. You know the way your heart can bring bitterness into a sunny day and make it cloudy. Or the way insecurity can poison friendships and make you think paranoid thoughts that other people are against you when they've done nothing of the sort because your heart feels insecure. Perhaps you're just exhausted like me by the anxiety you find anytime you look at your heart. And you've, maybe you've tried some different ways. You've read some books about, about coming to terms with your heart and, and being master of your heart. But you know deep down that your worst enemy lives in here. And if that's true of you, then what you need to know is that Jesus does not need your heart. He is not interested in your good intentions. He is not interested in your worry-free living or your peaceful being and nor by the way does he need you to invite him into your heart as if he'd want to live in that haunted house no jesus promises you a new heart his heart utterly free from the crippling power that reigns over your heart from fear from doubt from insecurity from disbelief from paranoia from anger from all those thoughts that obsess you And those feelings that devour you jesus promises that he will take and he did take your heart with him to his grave and he left it there and he gives you his own resurrected heart in its place that's the ancient promise of the prophets when the prophets looked at israel and they despaired of israel ever being who god called them to be ezekiel says the only hope is that god give them a new heart Ezekiel 36, he proclaims God's promise, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And that's what Jesus gives us. He promises that in your baptism, he gave you his very spirit, God's love in action sent from Christ himself to form your heart into Jesus' heart. Paul celebrates this reality, this real historical reality. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And this new spirit, who is Christ in you, it really makes a difference. He gives you new thoughts, new desires, new feelings, new actions, new words. The Bible calls them good fruit, good works that come from your heart, not in order to make your heart right, but because Christ has already made your heart right and given you his own, because he buried you and raised you with himself. As we put it a few weeks ago from Ephesians, you are his workmanship, created anew in Christ Jesus for good works. And that means new good thoughts, good feelings, and good desires. Now, if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you'll realize that that old heart hasn't exactly gone away, has it? Nor for that matter has death, nor for that matter has selfishness. That selfish heart is still there clinging to life, and still bending your desires and your thoughts back towards itself, even though, as Jesus promised, one day, one day your sinful heart will be gone, it's not gone yet, is it? And that means that as Christians, our lives are lives of daily repentance. Daily repentance, continually turning our hearts away from ourselves and towards Christ, continually rebutting our hearts' demand to be God and turning towards the God who promises to give us new hearts. So there's a misconception about daily repentance we kind of have to address. I hope this doesn't doesn't sound familiar, but as Lutheran Christians, sometimes we get drawn into thinking of repentance as that time when we try to feel guilty about ourselves right before the absolution. Right? It's it's a time in the service, and oh, it's a time for us to feel guilty for this week. We kind of conjure up feelings, we turn into our hearts and try to feel bad, so that we can feel better when we feel hear the absolution. But this is a pale shadow of repentance. Repentance is not something you do on Sunday morning. It's a daily discipline, a daily discipline of taking every word, every thought, every feeling, every action captive, taking them captive to the knowledge of Christ. And there's many, many things we could say about the life of repentance, but today we're focusing on the heart and the relationship between our thoughts and our feelings So let's talk a little bit about how the work of repentance impacts our feelings. And we need to to start by defining what feelings are. Feelings are perceptions. Perceptions of the significance of things or ideas. And these perceptions want to be understood. Feelings are perceptions of, of the significance of things or ideas. They're not magic, they're not mystical, they're not even spiritual. They are a visceral bodily reaction to something that is seen or imagined. For instance, you see a toddler wandering out into the street, your body fills with fear, and that emotion is telling you the significance, danger, danger, and that feeling thrusts you into action in a way that's much faster and more, and more well, better than your reason would say, I don't think that's a wise idea. No, your feelings are an important part of your humanity that see something and they judge its significance and they get you to react accordingly. So think about another feeling like regret. It's a feeling that you have maybe when you see something in your mind. Through your memory, you recall an unkind word or a job you did poorly or a moment you missed. And that vision in your mind summons up the feeling failure, regret. An, An author, describe the time he comes into a room and sees his young boy swinging uh, his pet gerbil around by the tail. And he feels anger because his, his sight sees his son swinging his gerbil and his feeling says, cruelty, cruelty in a child whom I love. And precisely because he loves his son, he communicates his anger and gets in his face and says, you will not be a cruel person because I love you. Or maybe this afternoon, you'll see Tom Brady get sacked, and you will feel joy. Your feelings will tell you humiliation, failure for someone who's seen far too much success. But of course, I use this example because our feelings are not always right, are they? They might judge the significance of something and do it wrongly. They might be mistaken. They might actually be sinful, like the envious resentment of successful quarterbacks. Sometimes they can be based on false beliefs, but, but it, when we recognize that our feelings are not directly under our control, they're responses to things we perceive or see, it helps, us, it helps us know how to handle them, right? We know if, we want, if we're feeling sad and we want to feel better, we ask, well, what are we looking at right now that's making us feel sad? If I wanna feel excitement and joy, I will go on YouTube and I will look up the video of Landon Donovan scoring the goal in the 93rd minute of the 2010 World Cup game versus Saudi Arabia, and I will just feel it all over again. That's 10, 10 years ago, I probably should let it go, but it brings me joy. But the point when we recognize that our feelings are not directly under our control, they're a response to what we see, we understand how they work a little bit better, we are then able to evaluate them, because sometimes they're sinful. Sometimes the perception itself is sinful. When I was younger, I knew someone who would lock the car door if they saw a black person walking by. Now, this person would have said, I'm not a racist. I don't have any racist beliefs. But their feelings betrayed something a little bit deeper. Their feelings, they saw a person of a different skin color, and their feelings said, danger. And even though they wouldn't have considered themselves a racist, what that feeling showed is that they have a deeper false belief that people who are different from them are dangerous to them. And so not only can our feelings be incorrect, they can be based on sinful ideas that we don't even realize we have. Sinful beliefs, sinful prejudices, sinful feelings that we aren't even aware of. So as Christians, the life of repentance includes understanding these feelings, understanding them as parts of our heart, as perceptions of sinful hearts that need to be considered and evaluated and dealt with. And the way we do this is that the Christian life of repentance requires thinking to welcome feeling. We welcome feelings. Now, by welcome here, I don't mean we accept them all as right. I mean, we welcome them in the way that you might welcome a friend into your home with whom you need to have a conversation and settle a misunderstanding. You invite that feeling to be considered. We get a sense for this in Psalm 4, where it says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. See, Christians do not pretend that we don't feel angry, nor do we assume that anger is immediately wrong or that it's always justified. We acknowledge that we are feeling anger, that it's a part of our heart, it's a perception of the world, and then we ponder it. We ask, is this feeling truthful? Is it truthful? Does it help me understand reality? Is it anger at a miscarriage of justice that should drive me to action on behalf of someone who's been wronged? Or is it anger that reflects an untruth like angry at someone who did something that wasn't wrong it just inconvenienced me and it makes me angry see when we welcome our feeling we are we are taking our feelings and we are asking specific questions is this feeling truthful is it based on god's definition of justice of the good of mercy and kindness and humility or is it based on my sinful heart's definition of good is it appropriate Does it serve my neighbor or is it self-seeking and leads me away from my love of neighbor? See, welcoming your your feelings means neither denying them nor accepting them as they are. It means submitting them to Christ and his truth, taking every thought, every word, every feeling, every intuition captive to the knowledge of Christ. Let me give you an example. I remember a time uh, when a friend of mine and I both applied for an academic honor, and I'm embarrassed to say this was actually during seminary. my friend got it and I felt resentment I felt resentment now of course I feel embarrassed saying this because there's this weird idea that seminarians are supposed to be better than everyone else which is itself false right but I had to repent of this and that leads me to say I'm feeling resentment why why was a wrong done was an injustice done well not to my knowledge unless I assume that I am inherently smarter than my friend and therefore deserve it. So maybe there's pride lurking down there that's based, that's driving that resentment. Maybe it's just the fact that my friend got something that I wanted and I didn't get it. And deep down, I think that my wants are more important than my friend. See, Christian repentance is a lifelong process of thinking and thinking hard and thinking honest, asking difficult questions about our lives, about our choices, and about our feelings. And we can do this, because we know Jesus didn't die for perfect people, but he died for scoundrels like us. And we can pursue repentance, and we can think long and hard about our hearts and our feelings and our beliefs and our habits, because we know that through repentance, we are learning to love our neighbors. That's actually what the life of repentance is all about. It's not about earning God points. You already have all your God points. Jesus gave them to you. Repentance is about learning to love your neighbor. Because when you think long and hard about our hearts, not only do we recognize sinful beliefs and prejudices and selfishness, we begin to recognize patterns, patterns of our heart. We begin to recognize habits, habits of hurt. Maybe you notice that you have a feeling of worry. And you begin to welcome it. And I have this feeling of worry. And you notice it arises every time we're talking about money. Every time money comes into a conversation, I feel worry. And you think about your worry. And you realize, well, I have more than enough money to get along with. But I actually really struggle to share it. Because I'm worried that I won't have enough. I'm worried that God won't actually provide for me. And so that's kept me from giving when I should have. When I knew there was a need and I knew I could meet it. See when you've done this and you've realized underneath this worry is a lack of trust and greed, you have something really, really valuable. You have self-knowledge, self-knowledge. You've done some hard, deep thinking and you have something tremendously valuable. You have self-knowledge that will help you love your neighbor because growth in self-knowledge is growth in your ability to love your neighbor. It's growth in your ability to protect your neighbor from yourself. Ecclesiastes 7 points this out in in its own way. He says, do not take to heart all the things that people say. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. See, self-knowledge is really, really important. But not for you. For your neighbor. It's a powerful tool for shielding them from your own flaws and faults. Because when you know them, you're quicker to identify when those feelings come out. And you're better at stopping it. You become also more compassionate towards others who share the same flaws because you know it. You know that you have those same ruts in your heart as well. So thinking about your heart, it gives you a self-knowledge so that you can live loving your neighbor. Because the truth is, and this, this brings us to the difficult truth, is that growth in Christlikeness, sanctification as we like to call it, real, meaningful discipleship, it is not a journey of discovery of how awesome you are. Quite the opposite. The more time you spend in Christian repentance, the more you will realize how far you have to go. That those ruts in your heart grow ever deeper. Perhaps this is the reason we don't like it because we don't really want to know the truth about ourselves. But the more we recognize these sinful habits, the more we realize we stand in absolute dependence on God, that our sinful heart runs all the way down, and that work of repentance, letting the law of God open our eyes to our own sin, well, it takes a whole lifetime and will never be done with it. It's the work of an entire life, but it's a good work, a good work, a joyful work, because no matter how far that sin runs in your heart, no matter how distressing and wearied you become with your own heart, you know, at the end of the day, your heart does not define you. Your heart does not have the power to define you, nor even the power to condemn you. God is greater than your heart. John tells us in 1 John. God is greater than your heart and his promise defines you. His promise to give you Christ's heart through his Holy Spirit who's brought faith into you to call Jesus Lord and that means calling Jesus Lord over your heart. And so you know that on that day when the secrets of everyone's hearts are revealed and you stand bare before the throne of God that heart that God sees will be Jesus' heart not the one that you experience right now. It'll be Jesus' heart of perfect love of God and love of neighbor. And that's what God will see when he judges your heart. That's the beauty and the mystery of the gospel of Christ. And you can spend your whole life trying to overthink that. Believe me, I'm, I'm, I'm in the process, I'm working on it. But you will not. You can't overthink the beauty of the gospel because it is the peace of Christ. And it passes all understanding. And it will guard your heart and your kidneys, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This has been a message from Emmaus Church LCMS. We thank you for listening, and we invite you to find out more by visiting our website at www.emmauspasco.org. That's www.emmauspasco.org. M-M-A-U-S-P-A-S-C-O dot org.